We're going to be this morning again in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. We went through this whole passage last Lord's Day that we're looking at in three different sections. I'm going to go just a little bit further for time's sake in the first section this morning, and then we'll pick up uh, the rest at another time. But we've reached here the climax of the entire book. The moment that all the promises of the prophecies have, uh, that they've all been pointing to, the coming of the king and the establishment of his government on the earth, the setting, as we saw last week, is the battle of Armageddon, the unholy trinity of Satan, the dragon, and the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet have deceived and manipulated all of the remaining kings of the earth who hate the Lamb and his people to converge on the last stronghold of believers located in the heart of the promised land. I've stood up on a high bluff on the edge of Jesus' home, town of Nazareth, overlooking the area where many believe the armies will actually gather with the purpose of crushing the people of God, the Valley of Jezreel. It's a wide expanse capable of holding uh, a vast number of war equipment and soldiers ready for battle. But this will not take place on this breezy, sunny afternoon as it was when we stood there overlooking this site. It will actually take place in the midst of a cataclysmic, earth-shaking series of judgments. The sky will be dark, the water will be turned to blood, the earth will be uninhabitable at that point. An earthquake will rock the globe in the middle of the greatest thunderstorm the world has ever seen with, according to the ESV translation, a hundred pound hail following, falling and people cursing God. They never turn to him, the enemies of God in Revelation. They always curse back at him. And at the climax of these judgments with the armies of Satan gathered Against God's people, Jesus returns to judge those who have set themselves against him. In Revelation 19, 11 through 20, verse 6, we find his coming presented in three stages. First, the king returns. Second, he conquers his enemies who surround his people. And third, he establishes his kingdom, reigning for a thousand years on this earth. John says in verses 11 through 16, Then I saw heaven opened, the unseen coming to the scene. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords because he is coming to conquer and to reign. He comes as a warrior 
and as a king. We see that at the end of the opening verse in verse 11. It says he judges and makes war. Judging is primarily the function of the king. Making war is the function of the conqueror. And we see in this passage both functions of the coming king. We see Jesus as a divine warrior. He comes on a white horse in verse 11, which really in that culture was like the Roman war horse. Verse 13 shows that Jesus is wearing uh, wearing clothes that are, are dipped in blood, ready for battle. And following Jesus in verse 14 is a host of those riding on horses also described as an army. This army at the least, seems to consist of those whom Jesus has redeemed, who have come to conquer and reign with him as he promised they would. This army includes those, I think, who at this moment have Christ as their king. You and I, who are saved by him. We talked about this last week. I think we are going to be there on those horses as part of that army. Verse 15 shows Jesus with a sword coming from his mouth, the sword that in the Roman world represented the power someone had over life or death, whether you lived or died. So the conqueror will rescue the righteous and he will slay the wicked. And at the end of verse 15, we have this intense image, the wrath of Jesus compared to the imagery of one treading, actually trampling the wine press with the blood of the victims likened to the wine that flows out. Those are the images of Jesus coming as the divine conqueror. But mixed in with these images are the images of Jesus coming as the divine king ready to rule. Back in verse 12, it says his eyes are like a flame of fire, which indicates his piercing, all-knowing gaze. He will not judge, Isaiah says, by merely what he hears or what he sees. He will have perfect insight into every heart, into every situation, into every controversy. And in verse 12, it says on his head are many diadems or royal crowns. This image is related to his title at the end of this section, king of kings and lord of lords. He wears all the crowns because he is king over all the other kings. He's lord over all the other lords. He is every king's king. And in verse 15, it says he will rule them. Literally, he will shepherd them. He will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. And as we talked about last week, the rod is the shepherd's instrument that he uses to strike and defend the sheep. He will use this rod as a warrior, defending his sheep from those who surround them to destroy them. But he will also use the rod as he rules to continue to put down any insurrection in his kingdom. As you know, there are many kingdoms or governments that exist in our world today. And none of these governments are without its flaws because they have human beings running them. And we are fallen people. There are those in the United States who love their country, who have put their lives on the line for America. Some of them have given their lives for America. There are others, however, who claim to hate the United States, who say they are ashamed to live here. Sometimes these people, ironically, are making millions of dollars as sports stars or entertainment people or movie stars, and yet they despise the very country that made them wealthy. 
If something conservative happens, like a Republican gets into the White House or the overturning of Roe v. Wade, they whine loudly about how terrible the nation is, and they even threaten to move out of the country. And many of us would love to take them up on that offer, if I can just say that. In fact, some of us would even help them pack if we were asked to. But most of them don't seem to actually follow through on that threat. But the truth is, even though we, we, we smile and, and mock a little bit in that direction, the truth is we are also critical of our country for opposite reasons. When the government takes positions that we believe are fundamentally antithetical to what is right and good according to the word of God. That doesn't mean we hate our country or that we're no longer grateful for our freedoms. But it means that we do what we can in a democracy as good citizens to push toward those biblical principles and commitments which made our country great in the first place without repeating our mistakes. And we must do this because a human government that is truly of the people and by the people and for the people is only as moral as the people themselves which means that a representative democracy where the sovereignty truly resides in the will of the people, that's really what's going on here. If it works even as perfectly as the founding fathers may have envisioned, it's destined to drift from God when its people drift from God. But as dark as it is getting in America spiritually, we are still not other governments that you would probably never want to live under in this world. We are not a totalitarian country like North Korea, for instance. North Korea sees Christianity as a threat to its communist government because its leaders are literally worshipped as deity. I met a military chaplain who told me that his dissertation that he wrote relatively recently in, in some seminary in the U.S., his dissertation is how to evangelize North Korea when the country collapses, which he says eventually it will, and Christians are free to enter. He says that first, those who evangelize have to enter quickly because the North Korean people will be committing suicide at the loss of their leader, Kim Jong-il, because everything in their life revolves around the Kim family. They are descended from the gods and everything they do. They, people even pray to them at meals. And they keep everybody in the country as much as they can from knowing what's happening outside of the country. Secondly, he said, Americans will not be able to enter, even though it's an open country. Because the people of North Korea are taught to demonize America. They do this for political reasons. But they are told, and this is all in his dissertation. He's vetted all this through the faculty. So I, I trust a lot of the things he says here. Uh, apparently, they, they, the, the notion is, if you look at the face of American, if you're North Korean, you're looking at the face of the devil. And they will be in fear of us if we are there. He says he has a whole strategy for training South Koreans to go into their country and give the gospel to their countrymen, the brothers and sisters that we have in South Korea who are believers. But how would you like to live under that kind of a government? How would you like to live under the governments of Mussolini or Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin, if you know anything about those totalitarian governments that they ran and how people feared under their leadership? But of course, the United States of America was actually born out of a desire to throw off one government that the Declaration of Independence calls an absolute despotism and form a government based on a more perfect union. So we might be tempted to think that it would be a lot better 
if God would just run the world differently, if human government had not even been a thing, if God himself would have somehow always been the visible sovereign ruler of the world with no human representation. In fact, there are some who say that human government was never intended by God, that it is a corruption of how God wanted to run the world when he created it, and God just finally gave in. I don't think that's the way the Bible tells the story, though. Human government is not a corruption of God's design for the world. It's a fulfillment of it. One of the first things we learn about human beings in the Scripture is that they were created to govern. Genesis 1.28 says that God blessed Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over everything that moves on the earth, which would later include people that move on the earth. Human government is an expression of this blessing that God gave to human beings from the beginning. The ability to have dominion means to have government, to rule over the world that God gave to them. We do not have a clear indication of what this form, if any, of human government took before the flood, but we do know that when God made his covenant, with Noah and his descendants, he built human government right into that covenant. When he says in Genesis 9, 6 to Noah after the flood, whoever sheds the blood of man by man, by a human being, by an Adam, Adam is Adam's name, but it also means man. It also means ground, by the way, or dust. By a man shall his blood be shed, by human beings. For God made man in his image, which is why we don't kill We don't take life. Some people assume that God never intended Israel to have a king, that they were supposed to be ruled by judges who told them what God wanted them to do, that they were not to be a monarchy, but always remain a theocracy. But that's not true either. Israel may have wanted a king at the wrong time, and they may have wanted a king for the wrong reasons at that time, but God had already written into the law that he gave to them in the wilderness the stipulations for their king. God told them back in Deuteronomy 17, when you come to the land when the Lord your God is going to give you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations are around me, which is exactly what Israel said in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I don't think it was all for the right reasons, but that literally are the words that they spoke. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord God will choose. Run from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. I'm going to skip down to verse 18. It says, when this king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. I don't know if it meant the whole law. It sounds like a great idea. The king has to write by hand every bit of the law that he is swearing to uphold. It may be just this section that he's talking about here. There's debate about that. But he will write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Checks and balances. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, and that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up among his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children 
in Israel. So when Israel chose Saul as its king, and Saul turned out not to be a man who would follow the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, God put a king on the throne after his own heart. That means after his own choosing. God chose that king. He chose David and put him on the throne. And in 2 Samuel, which you're not going to go to this morning for time's sake, but uh, he promises David, his chosen king, there will always be a descendant to sit upon your throne, the throne of Israel. Well, here in Revelation 19, that king, the son of God, a descendant of David after human birth, comes to claim his throne. He is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise of blessing on the first humans to have dominion over the earth because Jesus is coming to reign with absolute dominion. His government will be fundamentally different than any that has existed before him on planet earth. Do you know why? Because governments are corrupt when they are overseen by corrupt people. This ruler This king will be the first in human history who is unfallen, the first who can actually rule with absolute moral perfection, absolute goodness, absolute justice and mercy and wisdom and power. Who is this king coming in Revelation 19? If we only read these verses that describe the glorious coming of this king, do you realize looking at the text, you wouldn't know his name if all we had were these verses? I don't know if you noticed that, but nowhere in all these verses does it say that the coming king is Jesus. And we know it is. He's promised to come. It's been working up to this. He's called the lamb in Revelation for the most part. We know who this is. But the text focuses on something else. Not just on what he's going to do. We talked about that last week, these glorious images we we worked through last week. But I told you this week, we would come back and just circle around again to look at the names of Jesus in this text. The text focuses on these names. In verse 11, he is called faithful and true. In verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. In verse 13, the name by which he is called is the word of God. And verse 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There are five names, four if you want to count the first first two as one. I, I say five names. And though none of them is the name by which we commonly refer to this coming king, these names speak volumes to us about who he is. I thought it was really interesting that uh, Brian Smith pointed out that we, are, we know we're maturing in our Christianity when we begin to be able to appreciate and to love God for everything that he is, not just, not just the common grace, love, and mercy, although those are profound attributes in, the, in and of themselves. But these names give us more of who he is. I should say that the word of God is likely not an allusion to John calling Jesus the word in John chapter one. The name means that he comes representing the holy word of God and his judgment is based on the standard of God's revealed word. It's the reason, no doubt, that the sword comes from his mouth representing that word. And we we talked about that last week. And I also have uh, talked about the fact that king of kings and lord of lords has the meaning that he's the lord and the king over all other lords and kings. 
But in our remaining minutes, I, I'd like us to focus just on these first three names a little more closely. So in verse 11, he is called faithful and true. Now, think about that for a moment. Of all the ways to identify this coming king, these names take the lead. I mean, it says he's on a white horse, and then the next thing it says is he's called faithful and true. Jesus is called faithful. He's called the faithful one. And that means at least two things. First of all, faithfulness means you do what you say you're going to do. That's what faithful is. You're trustworthy, dependable. You keep your promises. That's what faithful means. There's another thing that faithful means. It means you continue to do what you say you're going to do. You're steadfast, dedicated, unyielding, enduring. That's what it means to be faithful. Would you say that leaders in human government are faithful? Do politicians do what they say they're going to do? Do they continue to keep their promises? Sometimes, but not consistently. You know why? And we make, you know, we, we, we get onto them for that, and we should. But they do that because politicians are a lot like you and me. We are challenged when it comes to the idea of being faithful. We make promises that we are not able to keep at times. Or we make promises and we don't regard them enough to follow through on them. Or we don't take our commitment seriously enough. Or we do something well for a while and then we lose steam. Does anybody feel this morning like they've lost steam in, in some area? You don't have to raise your hand as a testimony or anything like that. So we probably shouldn't be too hard on politicians or political leaders. They are governing the way we often live ourselves. It's just that out of commitments, uh, their, their commitments are, are, are very public. Ours are not so public. Our commitments are, are to our family or certain individuals. And, and of course, our commitments are to God if we're believers in Christ. And those are sometimes are private commitments that we share with just a few. But this coming king is the picture of faithfulness. His very name is faithful. He embodies faithfulness. And I'll tell you why that's so important. First, Jesus' faithfulness is the reason he came and completed the mission of our salvation. Remember his wrestling in the garden the night before he was on the cross and saying to the Father, Nevertheless, your will be done, yielding to the Father's will. As he always had faithfully yielded to the Father's will throughout his ministry. And he endured the cross. He stayed on the cross. In the words of Hebrews 12, 3, he endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Can we even imagine suffering such a horrifying, humiliating death as Jesus did, being the sinless son of God? While sinners stood around, mocking and jeering and treating him as if he were less than human, and they were the fallen ones. Because that was the psychological part of crucifixion. Not only was the victim suffering unimaginable pain, 
but he had the very dignity stripped away from him, being treated with contempt as if he was not even even worthy to be called a human being. The Romans knew how to torture physically and mentally. Jesus endured this kind of hostility, even though the fact was that the whole world was not worthy of him. And knowing that he had the authority to come in power and judgment and wipe them from the face of the earth and cast them alive into the lake of fire, and yet he stayed on the cross for them. He died for them. And he did so so that he could save us from sin, bearing our sins for us. That's Jesus' faithfulness. And and when he comes, his first name is faithful. And not only does Jesus' faithfulness mean he can save us, but it also means that he will continue to keep us. The writer of Hebrews, again, also calls Jesus a merciful and faithful high priest who continually helps us, one who always lives to intercede for us. And thirdly, I think we should be thankful for Jesus' faithfulness because it means he is indeed coming for us just like it says here in this text. When he says, I will come again, he means it. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 4, that people will one day mock and say, where's the promise of his coming? Hello? Where is it? Everything is just the same as it was before. That's what they think. Because on that day when the heavens are split open and Jesus comes with power and great glory, his faithfulness will be on display in the forefront of everyone's thinking and it will finally happen and everybody will think he did it. He kept his promise. He came back. Because Jesus never made a promise that he did not keep and he never set on a mission that he did not see through to the end. His name is faithful. And as we follow our Lord, I think that faithfulness ought to be one of our growing qualities also. We ought to love faithfulness. Do we do what we say we're going to do? Do we continue to do it? Do we commit and finish the commitment to the end. Now, that may be an admirable quality in itself. In fact, the world loves that quality. They want to hire people like that. If you just have that quality, you could probably show up not even knowing anything about the business and they'll hire you if they know you're going to show up and work hard for them. That's an admirable quality. But what if your goals or the thing you promise to do and be faithful to is not the right thing? That it's a bad thing you've committed to. That is why there is another name of this coming one that is paired with faithful, and that is true. Jesus is not only faithful, absolutely, but he is also true. He is the true one. 1 Peter 2.22 says that Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit, any lying found in his mouth. It means He only spoke what was true. He only did what was true. His only goals or desires were toward a true and good and righteous end. Even judgment, as we've seen this morning. 
Again, this is not something you find commonly in politicians, in government leaders, in kings, in presidents. Because again, government leaders and kings and presidents are a lot like the rest of us. Not only is our faithfulness often weak or inconsistent, but our ends are not always true or just or right. We often go on emotions or pleasure or convenience. But Jesus is the true one. He has never lied to us. He has never spoken something that was wrong or misleading. And that means we can trust his words and his warnings and his commands and his invitation to follow him. He is called faithful and true. Now, quickly, there's a third name that Jesus has called. I want to touch on this. It's a curious name. In fact, it's mysterious, so mysterious we don't even know what it is at least for now. Verse 12 calls it a name written that no one knows but himself, a secret name. Notice it's a written name. There are some scholars and commentators who argue what this name is. And one of the critical commentaries will say, well, so-and-so thinks it's this, and they'll list all the commentators that think it's this name, and and so-and-so thinks it's that, and they'll list all the names. And, And I'm like, you know, this is a worthless exercise because the Bible says no one knows but himself what this name is. How are they going to know when they get it right? But what is the significance of this secret name? Is this simply highlighting the mysterious nature of Jesus' coming? I don't know if we can be completely certain about this, but it seems that this name is related to something Jesus promises to the churches all the way back in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. I'll just put the text on the screen for you. In Revelation 2.17, Jesus promises the church at Pergamum. These are the promises for those who conquer, those who embrace Christ and hold on to him to the end no matter what. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And then you read about the church of Philadelphia and Jesus says to them in chapter 3, verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him, another writing here, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. I will write on him. And notice the connection between these promises and the name of Jesus at his coming. This is a written name. When you write something on someone or something, you are saying something significant about that object. You might write your name on a book or a special object because you want people to know that you're the owner. It might be a very precious heirloom or a a book you don't want to lose. It might be a a dish that you bring to a potluck and you want to make sure it gets back to you after after other people have used it here at the church. But you write your name on it as the owner because that object is important to you. You share a connection with that object. You want people to know about that connection. These verses, I think, bring together... Something that indicates that there is a secret name of Jesus by which he is called that we cannot know now, but we will know someday when he returns and we are united with him at last. As John says in 1 John 3, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. In other words, there's something more of our relationship with Christ. In fact, much more that he will disclose to us and we will know him in a way that we cannot imagine 
at this moment because he will write his name on us. Thus, he will reveal it to us and thus he will claim us as his own visibly forever. We already belong to him. We're told that. But this is a time in human history when, as I talked about last week for a little bit, the, the invisible becomes visible. It's the erasure of the distinction between what is seen and what is not seen. It is hard to believe, but the one who embodies faithfulness and truth will one day reveal that we belong to him visibly. And though we had not been consistently faithful to him, and maybe we have not been true in our walk with him at every point, yet he will have remained completely faithful and true to us. And everything he told us is true and will come to pass. This is our coming king. It's the one who is coming for us. I think we need to rejoice in this coming and hope in the promises of his coming. And I think that the scripture teaches us this in so many ways. As we wait for him, we imitate him. We're faithful like he is. We're true like he is. We've been placed in Christ. He's given us everything we need to live out faithfulness and live out truth. As we wait to deepen in this relationship with him face to face. So let's be faithful and true like him whose very name is faithful and true. Father, thank you for...